Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, a podcast of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. In the spring of 2020, we created this podcast in response to a need to connect in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and to explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm Sarah Valenti, visiting assistant professor at the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara then Raven Professor of Holocaust Studies. Today's episode is about significant events that took place in the year 1938. To see copies of the images we'll discuss throughout this episode, please download the Primary Sources Guide for this episode on our website, at ackerman.utdallas.edu forward slash virtual dash outreach. Hi, Dr. Romer. Hi, Dr. Valente. So here we are again ready for one of our episodes related to the Third Reich. And in today's episode, we come to the end of the series, A Year in the Third Reich, where we have been exploring the significant events of the early years of of Hitler's regime for the purposes of understanding how the early years shaped what would come later on, as we know, the Holocaust. So in many ways, maybe in comparison in particular to our last episode on 1937, where one could have thought, well, what is the overarching significance of that year and what ways does it really shape a particular experience? 1938 seems to be really obvious. On the one side, it's the year before the war. And on the other side, it is, you know, both at the time and in memory are shaped um, largely around two events. On the one side, Um, obviously the annexation of Austria in March, uh, which means everything that we've been discussing that has occurred between 33 and 38 comes now almost overnight to Austrian Jews. I mean, in a much more compressed way, uh, which makes also the sense of aggravation and fear even more intense. And then secondly, of course, on the night of broken glasses or the the so-called Kristallnacht, in November. Um, so anything, you know, in between um, kind of, you know, sandwiches is sandwiched by these two events that really put 1938 for us on the map. And unfortunately also for, for, the, for the Jews at the time who really clearly understand the significance of these changes. Um, there's a clear uptick now in, in individual scrambling in a, with renewed energy to leave um, both Nazi Germany as well as Austria in ways they hadn't quite done before. So there's a real, you know, you know, sense that situations had significantly worsened and very quickly had worsened. Absolutely. We see with this year, you know, sort of since 1933, there had been already the gradual changes with German laws that were aiming to exclude German life from every aspect of the economy, civil life, social life, cultural life in Germany. Um, In 1938, there's really this kind of sharp turn that we see how the Nazis are ramping up their efforts to really enforce the removal of Jews 
um, not only from society, as we have seen up until this moment, but really to mobilize, to physically remove them, to physically get rid of them in these so-called immigration programs. And so, you know, as we were going back and forth about this year, you know, what should we focus on for this year? We actually ended up deciding to focus more on Eichmann and the Office of Jewish Immigration, the so-called Office of Jewish Immigration, uh, which comes towards the end of that year. Um, and the first office is open in Vienna. So as you're saying, you know, with the annexation of Austria, I think it's so important for us to, to, to mention this, that everything that we have seen up until this point comes very quickly to Austrian Jews, but there will also be a, almost an experiment that takes place in that early moment in August, from August to December of that year, uh, with Eichmann in this office that he's trying to ramp up, you know, this, this immigration process for Austrian Jews first. There's also, an, I mean, Eichmann in lots of ways is, is an example of that, and then he isn't. The, the other part that we also have to remember that with the annexation of 39 comes now also into the Third Reich, into the Reich, all the Nazis that had existed in Austria, yes. but who had, you know, in the previous years, a decisively different experience. Whereas in the Altreich, in the, in the German Reich, uh, the Nazis had come to power they had obviously not been in power in Austria. And so many of these radicals that now come very quickly to the fore come actually out of this Austrian context and very quickly, you know, you know, come to a certain level of importance. Um, Eichmann being one of them, but Eichmann obviously had been already in Berlin earlier. But for him, it's, you know, it's presumably the moment where Eichmann starts to become important and relevant because this is the moment also where the offices that he represent all of a sudden seem to gain more momentum and are readying themselves for greater roles and responsibilities that will be upon them once Germany enters the war in a year later. But this is a critical moment also for him where he can kind of you know, entertain the idea of being relevant and important in solving issues for the Third Reich forced migration being the, the issue at the time. And with this question of forced migrations, you know, even before this office was set up, we have another very important thing that happens in 1938, which is the Avion Conference uh, that comes in July. So this is just, you know, a month before this decision for this office is set up. And the Avion Conference, we know that there were representatives from 32 countries. Uh, that attended to discuss what to do with the so-called German refugee problem at this moment. And as we know, unfortunately, there was no significant solution. No country was willing to accept, except one Dominican Republic, very limited numbers. Um, so there's really no sort of inclination from the international community at this point, given all the history that we already know up until this moment, uh, to actually do something to help. You know, we have Roosevelt's policies of speaking out against Hitler's atrocities, but that really didn't do anything actually concrete on the ground to facilitate Jews to enter the United States as refugees. Uh, given the immigration quotas of 1924, um, we know that that's the, the moment where many German Jews that were trying to come to the United States were really caught um, under that quota and unable to actually you know, escape from, from Nazi Germany. And 
you know, this is a moment of, that really shows us great complexity of American society, of American opinion in this moment that I think is worth us mentioning, you know, when we think about what is happening in Europe. But of course, what is happening there is having repercussions throughout the world. It's not like this was something that was happening in a vacuum. And so we have some really interesting things happening as far as on the American side in this moment. Would you like to talk a little bit about the American response to this? Well, I mean, the U.S. fell in line with everyone else short of the Dominican Republic, as far as the AVN conference was concerned, that the international community was unwilling to come to the aid and the assistance of German slash Austrian Jews, who, like we already said, were now desperately trying to find ways um, to, to leave the Third Reich. According to one of the bigger surveys conducted at the time in July 1938, um, there was actually also in the wider population not a great uh, deal of, 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 of willingness to take on um, any um, refugees. And so we have um, the larger number actually speaking out against it. So what is your attitude towards allowing German, Austrian, and other political refugees to come into the United States? 67% um, say that with conditions as they are, we should try to keep them out. It, it's also interesting how the wording, you know, is, is put here, political refugees. So in what ways are they, how can one actually be, you know, political refugee if one is, you know, that sounds as if you're like a, you know, particular opponent of a regime. Well, you're dealing with a fascist country, right? And so I think that's also another kind of way of, by which maybe the idea of these refugees was possibly also associated with something as a little bit, more unbecoming to, to consider for the U.S. Uh, we see how England responds in, in not in a radically different way with the one significant difference, and that is the kinder transport, Absolutely. Uh, which creates also on the one side opportunities for at least Jewish children to survive. But on the other side, as far as this tail end of 38 is concerned, an endless amount of grief and fear and tears where children are now separated from their parents and are put on trains uh, with suitcases packed that sometimes reveal that the parents had a good sense that it would at best take years to see them again, with sometimes clothes being packed, being still too, too big for the kids at the time. And um, thereby, this also being, even though it makes up one of the quote-unquote better stories, mm -hmm. being not without its own form of trauma and and, and, and pain um, as far as these families are concerned. So it's a, it's a really loaded year that is, is high also in emotions and, and the aggravations and, and intensified, intensified forms of fear. But, you know, like we said, also the moment really where Eichmann, you know, boosts about his many accomplishments in Vienna, feeling very... Um, good about being able to report back to, to Berlin how he, with his office, has been able to force Jews in larger numbers out of Austria, um, so much so that by the end of September 1938, already 38,000 Jews had left Austria. So this is a big, you know, kind of scoring card for him that his office seems to be in, in effect. And this is the type of office that would be used now as a number of other locations for as long as Nazi policy was interested in mass, you know, and enforced 
migration. You know, we know that eventually, obviously, they'll switch from from this idea to mass killings, and this you know will mark the years from 41 into 42. Uh, but at this point, at least, they are still committed to to harassing, intimidation, and using any other form to entice Jews in large numbers to leave the country. Absolutely. What we also see in this moment that has already in the previous years been ramping up to this, but there is this incre incremental Aryanization towards Jewish life. So, he, you know, Eichmann has on his side, of course, all of the support, let's say, of, of the Nazi system as far as, you know, the mandatory registration of all Jew Jewish residents inside the Reich. Decrees that were forcing all Jewish businesses to be turned over to Aryan hands. Jewish doctors losing their licenses, Jewish lawyers being completely disbarred at this moment. Um, and then something really interesting also is happening in 1938, which is the changes to the passports, right? When we're thinking about immigration, we're thinking about people trying to leave, getting their documents, having papers. Um, in August of that year, all Jewish women in Nazi Germany and its, and its territory were required to add the name Sarah. All Jewish men were required to add the name Israel. And then very soon thereafter, their passports also were um, invalidated unless you had the J, right? So completely um, providing a system for Eichmann and the likes that were trying to create this this forced you know emigration from the from the German Reich, with all the the necessary mechanisms um, to aid that effort, right? So we also see this is a change that is occurring in this moment. I think that is really significant. I'm glad that you're bringing it up. The mm -hmm. the true significance of that also for me was brought you know home at some point when I looked at a telephone book. When you see all the sudden the name Sarah also attached to every Jewish woman in the telephone book, so that it's you know really it's not just in your passport, uh, but it's really visible and you're carrying a mark around that everyone around you knows exactly who you are and that you're kind of placed respectively on even further into the margin of your society. Kristallnacht, you know, is also I think significant in, in other ways because it. You know, you brought it up the kind of undermining of the, the economic, you know, mm -hmm. life of, of Jews in, in, in Germany. And a lot of what we think about Kristallnacht also is kind of the smashing of windows, the attacking of, of businesses and so on and so forth. But and we have all these kind of public scenes of that. But I think another reason why in the memory, this also to this day is something that remains like, you know, so traumatized is that it came along with the vandalizing of many private homes. Yes. And I think all along, presumably from 33, 30 to 38 for Jews, the retreat into their private homes as a last kind of, you know, sanctuary of sorts would have elevated the importance of these last safer spaces. And seeing now that in 38, the, the doors, so to speak, were not, you know, any longer the last frontier, but could also be broken down and beaten down. And one could all of a sudden van find one's own private houses vandalized as well, contributed also to this, you know, urgency, I think, and again, in, in a different way. On the other side, the, you know, we always have to ask ourselves and the Germans. Mm. And so we have some interesting surveys that suggest that not all Germans were that, you know, entirely um, supportive of the, the mass violence, of the, the public display of that. And so there seems to be, 
a bit of a more varied responses as far as the surveys are concerned. And then on the other side, we also have a lot of evidence just from quote unquote innocent photos that were taken at the time that plays a lot of Germans into the crowds of spectators that are watching how the synagogues are burning and not moving into action, but rather being entertained by what unfolds um, in front of their very eyes. So 38 is in that respect also a significant year because it does, with all of its complexities, indicate that there's a greater willingness now to engage in these kind of public forms of, of display of hatred and, and what comes along with it. So in that respect, I, I, despite the very responses in the survey, I think there are also otherwise uh, larger scale participation. So it kind of um, goes both ways here a little bit. So it's in that respect also, it's not quite yet a turning point, but there's a certain you know, change, I think, that is also discernible here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you rightly point to this moment where, you know, the widespread sense of violence and fear and danger is, I think, what, you know, the, the concretization of that fear, I think, is exactly what happens on Crystal Night. A lot of the accounts that we see uh, recording what happens is the idea that Jews are being beaten by Nazi thugs in the streets. There's loss of life. I think the estimated numbers about 91 Jews are killed this night. 30,000 Jewish men are taken to concentration camps. So it's, you know, it's, it's really this, almost this shock, right? That all of these kind of policies that had existed and things are changing, you know, in Jewish life, but it's this actual moment of where, you know, you see physical clashes and, and this willingness or actually the manifestation of the power of the Nazi regime to really start mobilizing physical bodies and putting them into concentration camps. This will, of course, you know, also force the immigration of Jews from Germany in 38. I think we have about 36,000 leaving and then in 39, 77,000 leaving. Uh, but it is this moment, I think, of great uncertainty and also a, a kind of, you know, as we have, I have oftentimes turned to Victor Klemper during these, these episodes because I, I really love, you know, reading what he has to say. And Towards the end of this year, he writes in his diary, this is coming, of course, you know, a month after Kristallnacht. Um, and here he is, this is from December 6th, where he is talking about, you know, the different things that are happening as far as um, his property. So he's talking about his house and having to turn it over and things of the sort. But then he does touch on this idea of the need to emigrate, the need to leave but also the inability to do so under the circumstances. And um, I'd like to read just a, a, a paragraph here. So he says, I was at the errands a second time to get information about immigration possibilities and about my property assessment. It has been announced that the first installment must be paid on December 15th without waiting for the bill. He goes on about the property and then he says, um, Aaron detaining Buchenwald for several weeks with 11,000 others came back sick, prevented from emigrating to Palestine at the last moment. Customs had already put its seal on the furniture and he cannot raise the 1,000 pounds of sterling that is required. Even though he is offering 175,000 marks in German money, is extremely overwrought and pessimistic. He says that Georg's surety would be no help at all to me. Thousands upon thousands were applying to immigrate had already put their names down, I could wait three years. 
In Berlin, crowds of applicants were campaigning in front of the American consulate from 6 o'clock in the morning until evening just to be admitted. We shall just have to wait for Georg's letter, but our spirits have now sunk even further. And since new Jewish laws came come out nearly every, no, really every day, so our nerves have gone to the dogs. So this is even for, for someone like Lembra, who comparatively speaking still is secured somehow by his non-Jewish wife, it is a, is a really profound expression of, of despair, of utter despair and, and of a realization that things have really gone significantly to the worst now and not, you know, thinking about migration, you know, as, as the last resort. So, you know, in lots of ways, he kind of confirms very well what we've been just kind of trying to, to, to already discuss that this is really a very, very significant year for, for Jews. Um, and then in different ways, I, I you know, I assume and, and for Germans as well. And, you know, the connections here are, are sometimes uncanny as well, mm -hmm. because all this intimidation and harassment means in other ways that Germans are benefiting, average Germans are benefiting insofar as companies are being Aryanized, meaning forcefully taken over. Individuals are able to buy, you know, on the secondhand market now clothes and furniture that they know had belonged to Jews. Um, they move into all of a sudden apartments that are becoming more freely available. So there's a lot of immediate, you know, direct benefits that individual Jews from non-Jews from a larger segment of society are now experiencing um, as being, you know, the kind of effect of hate and animosity and violence. Absolutely. And I think what we, we can also think about is how is this moment being um, written about and reported about in the international press. And so I'd like for us to turn now over to Angie, who will read for us um, an article that came, that was published on December 13th, 1938 in the Times. And the title of this article is Getting Rid of the Jews, New Statement of Nazi Policy. An article from the Times, Tuesday, December 13, 1938. Getting rid of the Jews, new statement of Nazi policy. Foreigners expected to assist. The official news agency in a statement issued today, which bears the marks of high official inspiration, asserts that the object of all measures already taken against the Jews or in preparation is to hasten Jewish immigration from Germany not merely in the interest of the German people, but also of the Jews themselves. It is explained that now that the German people have grasped the notion of racial unity, the presence of Jews in Germany must in future lead to further incidents and difficulties, all regulations to the contrary notwithstanding. A complete separation of the Jews from the German people was therefore to be desired, and the purely legal separation which had hitherto taken place must be made an actual physical separation. It was an error, the statement continued, to speak of a ban on Jews, and it was not intended to restrict Jews to a special residential district in Berlin or to establish ghettos, a recent statement of the Berlin president of police apparently notwithstanding. 
Only Jews would be allowed to live as tenants in Jewish-owned houses, though in this case, it should be added, they are likely to find little accommodation thanks to the decree published on December 5th by the Minister of Economic Affairs with a view to forcing real estate out of Jewish hands, under which the higher administrative authorities may at will force a Jew to sell his land another property. It's interesting for us to see the way the wording of this article, right? We have the, this very telling line that talks about how the of, official news agency is issuing today, you know, the official inspira- inspiration asserts that the object for all the measures that have been taken against the Jews or in preparation is to hasten Jewish immigration from Germany, not merely in the interest of the German people, but also of the Jews themselves. So we have, you know, it's almost bizarre when we read an article like this that it's written almost in a way that we have the this 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 um, in between the lines that this is somehow something positive that is happening for the Jews. You know, there this this is a moment that something good is happening. They're being given this opportunity to emigrate. It's in their best interest um, um, to have this opportunity, right? It's written in this kind of language. Um, the article continues later on talking about how Jews are still allowed to shop here and there, and it provides kind of this almost um, explanation for what is happening and showing that it's still not that bad. Is that the same sense that you get from this article, Dr. Rummer? Yeah, I also get, you know, as if this, you know, is still something that is in the realm of something that is quasi-normal, that you can talk about it without being, you know, alarmed, that there are still, this is within the realms of things that can happen, in other words. And, and, you know, and the, aside from, from, from the most obvious you know, dire circumstances that that you know now Jews are being placed in, you know this is also loss of home yeah. in, in in so many different ways, and we could see that also as being partner of that of of the of those that are managing to get out. They they um, often take with them still little photo albums. The last time they're taking photos of their homes, um, they take things with them that have been dear to them. Many of them, you know, had lived in smaller communities, respectively their families over extended period of times, if not hundreds of years. Their loved ones of members of extended families had been buried in the local Jewish cemeteries. This had been home. This is not just, you know, a recent immigrant community. This had been home for Jews for, for centuries. And therefore, there's a lot of, of, you know, pain and loss that is also encapsulated in these last uh, couple of months that in lots of ways will never be undone. I mean, this will never kind of go away, even though we might think of those as the quote-unquote lucky ones that in the end survive because they got out and in many ways they are luckier, but they nevertheless endured tremendous losses and, and pain and uncertainty and fear. And also, you know, had to deal with the, the kind of choices that were available. So many of the immigrants that were here, they ended up in countries that were not necessarily their first choice, but the only available. This is the moment when about 20,000 German and Austrian Jews are finding as one of the last places to take them, Shanghai. Some others are making it all the way across the Atlantic um, into Latin America and other places. So 38, when it comes to an end, uh, spelled out possibly a horizon uh, that was increasingly getting darker and darker, even though it might not have quite yet been spelled out in all of its details. Mm-hmm. 
but it was definitely spelling out not very good things to come. Absolutely, absolutely. So we have seen how this year there's this escalation. It's the moment of this intensifying of anti-Jewish pol- not only policies but also willingness to remove them from the Reich. And so, um, unfortunately, as we know, you know this spells out doom that will come, as you have rightly said. Uh, but I think it's important for us you know, to do what we have done, to look year by year. I think it really helps us to be able to break it down a little bit more, to really understand what's happening each year. You know, if we look in 38, by the end of this year, you know, all Jewish children are removed from schools, right? All of these little policies that in the end actually will spell, spell out greater um, difficulties to, for what is to come. So thank you, Dr. Romer, for being here and for doing this project with me. It's been such a wonderful opportunity to, to do this for the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Valente. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with those interested in learning about significant events that happened during the early years of Hitler's Third Reich. To keep in touch with us, please follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast or on Twitter at Ackerman Podcast. Stay safe and take care. Until next time. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Valencia with the help of Angie Simmons and Niels Romer, edited and engineered by Sarah Valencia.